20 years ago this month, the U.S. Supreme Court found that so-called homosexual conduct laws were unconstitutional, and all adults have the fundamental liberty to private sexual intimacy, not to heterosexuals. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm joined by Paul Smith, the SCOTUS lawyer who argued and won Lawrence v. Texas, a landmark case seen by many as a door opener to other fundamental rights for the LGBTQ community. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. And happy anniversary of sorts. Thank you very much. It's really remarkable that it's been 20 years. (laughs) What I wanted to ask you about, because we are recording this a few days before uh, June 26th, when the opinion was actually published, are there any national or like events planned to honor this this opinion? Well, there have been a, a number of recognitions of it at various Pride events this month, but I don't know if anything is specifically scheduled for June 26th. There ought to be, because that's the date when the court has issued all three of its major gay rights opinions in the last 20 years, not just Lawrence, the one that I argued, but also the Windsor case and the Obergefell case. Really? There's a theory it ought to be a national holiday. (laughs) So tell me, do you suspect that that was planned by the court or that's just how it went? No, these cases are always among the most major of the term, and those are always handed down in the last week of June. So while it's a bit of a coincidence, it's not all that surprising. I was thinking they probably hold him till the last, but that's really interesting. You're right. It should be a national holiday. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, for the Lawrence case, was there something that stood out for lawyers in the civil rights community that this would be the case to bring? I was wondering if because the men were in the privacy of someone's home, if maybe that was it. Because I guess you were probably looking for a case for quite some time to strike down these laws. Not so much me, but certainly the movement was looking for a case. It had spent the last 16 years since Bowers versus Hardwick trying to find a way to get rid of the the prior Supreme Court decision that said there's nothing wrong with putting you in jail for being gay or lesbian. And they did that by getting rid of laws at the state level, state by state, reducing the number of states that uh, were had, had these sodomy laws on the books. But to go back to the U.S. Supreme Court, they needed a case in which somebody was actually prosecuted for private adult consensual behavior. And that wasn't all that common. The problem with the sodomy laws was it was a way to keep the uh, gay people in, in sort of bondage by saying, if you were out and proud, you were admitting to being a criminal. But the people didn't get prosecuted very often for what they did in their bedroom happily. There were other consequences. Certainly, you lost your children and you could lose your job, lots of things. Bar raids were justified by these these laws. So what they needed to go back to the Supreme Court was the perfect prosecution of somebody for private behavior in the home. And just about the time people thought they had made the, the, the world ready to go back through a lot of preparatory work, this case came along. And they, two men were prosecuted for what they were allegedly doing in a private home. And the case went up through the courts in Texas, and the, and the Texas court said there's nothing wrong with that. So that's where this case came from. Can you tell me, when you got on the case, what was the strategy leading up to oral arguments? Because as you mentioned, you want, the community wanted to overturn Bowers, but what was, what was the strategy? Well, the, the uh, 
the, the one thing I would say about that is the, the the main strategy in a Supreme Court case is is what you put in your written brief, and that we had carefully worked very hard to make the arguments as persuasive as possible. We argued both liberty and equality, both due, substantive due process and equal protection. Uh, we thought they worked well together. And when I got the opportunity to argue the case, working with Lambda Legal, they let me be the person arguing the case, even though they were the the lead counsel. What you do to get ready for a Supreme Court case is pretty much always the same. You practice and practice and you practice. You try to think of all the hard questions uh, that someone could ask you. Uh, You try to figure out a way to make sure you make your two or three or four most important main points and you have people act as judges in moot courts. Uh, and I did at least three or four of these where you not only practice, but then you analyze afterwards, trying to improve the answers, making them more automatic. Because you're up there for only half an hour and you might get 20, 25 hostile questions. So you don't have a lot of time to think. <laughs> it's better if you've just gotten to the point where you could answer these questions almost in your sleep. And so that's that's the, the, the trick of a Supreme Court argument and why it's actually so much better to have somebody who's done a few of them rather than a, a rookie. It's just a, a uniquely tough thing for somebody to do for half an hour. Can you share with me if they did figure in to what you thought they would do with um, Justices O'Connor and Rehnquist? Because they were on Bowers and both voted no on Bowers, but O'Connor's voted you got her on your side for Lawrence. So were you thinking, well, it's been a long time and people have different attitudes now? What were you thinking? And were you surprised by both votes? That was certainly true. It's hard to overestimate how the world and the attitudes of the country had changed on on gay and lesbian people from the 80s to 2003, in part because of the AIDS epidemic that was going on. But also culture just changed. And we had had hope about Justice O'Connor, although she had voted the wrong way in 1986. In between, there was a case called Romer versus Evans uh, in 1996, in which she and Justice Kennedy voted to throw out an amendment passed by the voters of Colorado that basically preempted all legal protection for LGBT people. And she said that she agreed with Kennedy that that went too far. Uh, so we were hopeful that she would find a way to vote for us by, by 2003. And the other really important person was Justice Kennedy, the other centrist of, at the time, who had, in fact, written Romer versus Evans in 1996. And he had not been there for Bowers. And we all we really needed was his vote, along with the four more progressive justices on the court at the time. And so the, the, the focus really was on Kennedy and O'Connor. Were you surprised with Rehnquist that his vote stayed the same, or that's what you expected? We never had a, a, a second thought about whether we could get Justice Rehnquist. Okay. <laughs> He was not the person that you would expect to come along and, and change his mind. We, you know, there was a, interestingly at the time there was a big story in the Washington Post about how friendly he was with his gay couple living next door friends. They watched each other's houses and took in the mail, and we thought, well, you know, at least he's doing that. But it didn't occur to us that that, that we would get his vote. And when you're doing these kinds of cases, you figure. If we get his vote, it means we've got all nine or, or at least seven or eight. So he was not the one that mattered. What matters is vote number five out of nine. And that was either going to be Kennedy or O'Connor or both. Okay. 
So I was also curious, Larry Tribe argued Bowers. Did he weigh in? Was he like on the, I guess you'd call it the, do you call it the murder boards or that's more for people that uh, go up to be on SCOTUS? Was he with your mock trials? In addition to his ACLU brief, of course. We, we call them moot courts, but okay. that's, that's really what lawyers call them. We're heading up for Supreme Court arguments. And he was not involved in those, although he was certainly in touch with the team and had written this, this brief, uh, as you note. We, we tried to keep the most of the work and the thinking to a r- relatively narrow group of lawyers who worked at Lambda Legal and at my law firm, Jenner and Block, and didn't want the entire community kind of collectively trying to brief this case and, and strategize about it. We, instead, we urged people to file amicus briefs, friends of the court briefs. And we had quite a list of those that were, we thought, very effectively supporting our side. Uh, and people really wanted to support us by 2003. It was, it was a very different legal culture uh, than it had been back in the 80s. And I was curious about your selection as a person to argue this. I mean, you have a lot of SCOTUS experience, and you also have a background that is similar to that of many of the justices. And also, you are someone who is, and at the time was, openly gay. So you're someone that many of the justices knew and respected, and also they knew that you were gay. So, oh, well, maybe, did that play in, do you think, in choosing you? Well, I'm not entirely sure what each of the justices knew about my life and how it evolved over time. And it was certainly true that I was probably the only person with the kind of Supreme Court experience I had who was out at least to friends and family at that point. And certainly I was out to everyone after the day after this case. <laughs> that was <laughs> part, of the, part of the press coverage. But I think that they there was the main reason I argued it is because I was already on the team. They had come to my firm when the case was heading to the Supreme Court, Lambda Legal teamed with us and the legal director there said, I don't want my rookie Supreme Court argument to be the most important case for gay rights, at least at to, as to that time. So she said, I think Paul should do this. And it was a happy sequence of, of events that led me to be there in the right place at the right time. Happy for me, I hope happy for, for everybody. I'm curious at that time, was that something you had to think of personally about, well, the whole world now after this is going to know that I'm gay? You probably got a lot of questions about it from reporters. And was that something that you were ready for? It, it seemed like the right time. And it was such an opportunity to do a, uh, you know, a kind of career heightened, the, the height of a career kind of uh, case. It was yeah. felt as, as historic as Brown versus Board of Education to the to the community uh, at the time, you know, we were we were keeping every shred of paper that might end up in a museum, and indeed, many of them are in the yeah. Smithsonian, along with my necktie that I wore. Right, right. So, you know, I wasn't going to turn down the opportunity, and it was really it turned out. I, you know, one of the things you worried about at that time, I was in private practice in a big firm, was how is this going to impact on other work I do, uh, and it turned out to be a, only a career enhancing opportunity made me more visible, made me, uh, had lots of other connections and opened up opportunities for me. It was really a wonderful, wonderful, lucky thing. It it turned out the timing being what it was 10 years earlier, it might've been very different. Well, I noticed on your OIS bio that, yeah, you had like, you had a lot of SCOTUS cases before, but you had even more after 2003, right? And not just it's not just that you were amicus counsel or it's not just that you were pro bono counsel. You were like paying client lead counsel, which is, 
you're humble, but that's a big deal. I mean, <laughs> well, we were my, my uh, friend Don Verilli, who later became Solicitor mm-hmm. General, and I were co-chairs of the uh, Supreme Court practice at Jenner at that point. We had just taken that over. And so we were really right at the the cusp of the, the, the most important part of our career as appellate lawyers. Uh, and it worked out to be a great part of that was to have this very visible victory on June 26, 2003. Don Verilli actually won a major death penalty case the very same day. And it, we were both uh, had our stories of, of our cases above the fold in the Chicago Tribune, which was good because our, our firm was based in Chicago, as you may know. <laughs> so we were very pleased about that. How did you feel when you left oral arguments? Did you think things went your way? Well, generally, we felt very good. The argument had gone well. One of the concerns I had was to make sure that the, the community would feel well represented. And everybody uh, assured me that I had done a really great job of answering all the hard questions. I, I, w- I felt like I was on that day. We didn't have a very clear indication from O'Connor and Kennedy about where they were. They were unusually quiet because I think this was a case of such prominence. They knew that everybody was watching them and wanted to know what they thought. And they, they responded by keeping it quiet. Uh, but they hadn't said anything negative. And the argument from the other side, as it turned out, was rather remarkably poor. I can say that because every news reporter who covered it that day said, wow, that was a big difference between those two arguments. Mr. Rosenthal had never argued a case, I think, in any court before and hadn't really known how to prepare, and it it didn't go well for their side. Do you mind telling me what was uh, the other side's counsel? He was the district attorney who'd been elected district attorney of Harris County. There was no solicitor general of Texas or anybody like that arguing that day. And he, he insisted on doing it himself. They had a reasonably uh, good brief that had been filed by his deputy, but he wanted to, he wanted to argue it himself. Okay. And tell me, what were you doing? Uh, well, I'm sure you were at the courthouse when, the, when they announced it, but when you got the call, what were you doing? Well, you know, it was unusual that we were, in fact, at the courthouse, because usually when your Supreme Court case is decided, you don't know the day that they're going to hand it down. Uh, but this happened to be clearly the last day of the term, and there were seven cases mm-hmm. still to be decided, and everybody showed up. Everybody who had anything to do with the Lawrence case, plus people like Larry Tribe, were in the courtroom watching the cere- ceremonial handing down of opinions, which the court does by putting on their robes, getting on the bench, and they go in, in a certain order, and the chief justice says the opinion in so-and-so will be, and it's being, uh, was written by, uh, for the court by so-and-so, and he'll, he'll, he or she will discuss our holding, and they give kind of a summary of the opinion. Sometimes they read almost the whole opinion. And so we get to Lawrence v. Texas, and everybody's on pins and needles in the courtroom, the chief says the opinion is written by Justice Kennedy. We didn't know for sure what that meant because he had not really laid his cards out in the argument. It felt like a long time before he finally got to the point where he said the court didn't understand what was at stake in Bowers and that case was clearly wrong and it's hereby overruled. And it was an amazing uh, moment. I've never experienced anything like it in that court or actually any court. The the wave of emotion that swept through the room that the the community finally felt seen and and respected by its own government in a way that it hadn't before. And it felt like the course of legal history for LGBTQ people was going to be very different because we had been able to do this. A number of people were weeping. 
I, I was just so relieved that we, that I hadn't argued and lost the most important case in gay rights history at that point. Oh yeah. <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> so by my count, you have argued 21 uh, SCOTUS cases, right? That's true. Is Lawrence your favorite? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, important cases, and including some others that were successful. A lot of my work that was, I think, really important was in the area of democracy, election law. And a lot of that has been tough. I mean, it's 5-4 against you a lot of the time in that area. It has been for me anyway. And so, you know, that's, that's part of it. Lawrence is a favorite in part because it was such a big win. But it, it, it also, I think, was the single most fundamentally important thing that I did as a lawyer, and again, I, I don't take credit as if it's all my achievement. The, the lawyers of the movement struggled long and hard to get us to that point, but I got to be the, the person standing at the podium. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. When we come back, I want to talk with you about how you think viewpoints have figured in with civil rights in the LGBTQ community. We'll be right back. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, my guest is Paul Smith. He's a senior vice president at the Campaign Legal Center, and he was lead counsel on the landmark case Lawrence v. Texas, a 2003 landmark gay rights case. Paul, do you have a sense about when Americans' opinions um, about being gay started moving towards acceptance? I feel like ACT UP played a role um, as well as perhaps California's Proposition 8, even though it passed, it really got a lot of people to come out and say, this is not right. What, what is your sense about how and when things changed? You know, I don't think there's any one moment. It is certainly true that you mentioned ACT UP. I think that the AIDS epidemic, which starts in the very early 80s and continues unabated for about 15 years before some effective medications came along in the, in the mid to late 90s, was an enormously important part of this because it made the gay community visible in a way that to most Americans, it entirely wasn't prior to that. They didn't think they'd ever met a person who was gay, lesbian, bisexual. They didn't have any idea that there were people in their own families who were gay, but it turned out that Uncle Steve, who left for New York when he was 20 and doesn't come back for Christmas, is actually gay. And um, those people showed up, you know, many of them dying. The, the struggle the community waged to help each other, to uh, in, including women in the community, that was eventually be, gained a lot of sympathy for the movement as well as visibility and, and produced, I think, in the culture and in the media, a very different attitude you started to see by, by the 90s. Uh, movies like Tom Hanks in Philadelphia portraying a lawyer who was uh, mistreated in his law firm for being HIV positive, who eventually, uh, you know, dies of AIDS in the movie, and Ellen coming out on her TV on her TV show. Those those kinds of events in the '90s showed that people were just looking at the whole uh, issue of being gay, lesbian differently, and the legal profession was a big part of it. The ABA. Uh, change from a position of hostility back in the 80s to a position of really strong support for gay equality by the time we were doing Lawrence in 2003, the ABA filed an amicus brief uh, saying we should win. And so law firms, big establishment law firms, all wanted to file a brief in the case on our side. That That shows also how much the external culture 
had changed uh, in that period of time. When you clerked for Justice Powell in the early 80s, and he was the one who voted, he voted for Bowers, right? Is that the right? Yeah, I clerked for him back in 1980. Yeah, before that. Comes along six years later. uh, And Justice Powell was on the fence about what to do when he had the fifth vote. And there's a lot of writing about how that ended up being decided. But he did eventually vote to uphold the Georgia sodomy law uh, in a five to four decision. I feel like in the early 80s, it was for lawyers who were gay, it was uncommon to share that in regards to work-related things, certainly in private practice. I would think there are always exceptions, but somewhat uncommon uh, because it could hurt your career. Right. I think there were many, many, many people in my generation uh, who came out of law school in the 70s and were, were in the closet for quite a period of time. Not everybody, but it was it was hard in the particular profession, in part because of the sodomy laws, to be too too out and proud. And that starts to change again with AIDS, actually. Well, and I was curious, too, about if you were in a state with a sodomy law, that would be a whole other issue. So I feel like I haven't, well, I grew up in Southern Idaho, but I haven't lived in a state with a sodomy law since I was 17 years old. <laughs> so when I was a young person before Lawrence v. Texas, I knew many lawyers at big firms who were out. I'm sure I also knew many lawyers at big firms who were not out. But when did you, did it start to change more after Lawrence? Or did you see people coming out before Lawrence? Did it depend where you were in the country? I don't think you can say it's one or the other. There were, this process was going on all through the, starting to happen in the late 80s, certainly happening more in the 90s and, and again, more after Lawrence of people being out in their law firms, uh, out in, as public officials, law firms establishing affinity groups, that, that all starts to happen. It, it was easier, of course, after Lawrence, because you didn't have this, this internal contradiction of somebody who was a lawyer in a firm, but also if they were too out, was it, were, would be admitting that they were on a regular basis violating criminal law in that state. That was a problem. It was a problem many people just chose to overlook when, when people came out, but there was still an issue for sure. Do you have a sense for like managing partners that identified as straight? When, generally speaking, did you start to see more acceptance from people in those positions? You know, I think by the time we get to 2003, this has happened. As I say, it was not controversial at all for every big firm in Washington to file an amicus brief on our side. My firm, Jenner, celebrated its lead role in in the Lawrence case by having big receptions in um, in Chicago and basically became uh, for quite a period of time, I think, known as the, the most comfortable place for LGBTQ young lawyers to come, in part because of Lawrence. Yeah, they had a history, I remember, of openly gay partners, at least in the Chicago office, right? Yes, even, even office before Lawrence, too. there were one or two, for sure. But then the numbers certainly change uh, after that. And the firm decided to make a virtue of uh, having this hit part of its history, a history, by the way, of a lot of other uh, important involvement in progressive and civil rights causes going back many years. Jenner is a, a firm that I, I left in 2016, but I was very proud to be associated with for a long time. Is that one reason that you went to Jenner? You know, it worked out in part because there was an opportunity in their Supreme Court practice at that moment in time. But I certainly liked the fact that they had this commitment to 
uh, civil rights, civil liberties, and a very, very strong commitment to everybody in the firm doing pro bono. I remember in the 90s and early aughts, sometimes if you were a young lawyer looking for work and you wanted to be someplace that would accept you for being gay, maybe you'd put that you were active with the GLBT Bar Association. You put, but that time, remember, they didn't call, usually they didn't call it the LGBT Bar Association. They called it something else. But what were ways, as a partner who was openly gay, what were ways of finding a place that you knew you could be yourself? How did people do that? prior to now? I'm not sure I have an answer for that. I, it is certainly true that one would, if one were looking to lat, you know, move laterally from one firm to another, you'd have to, you tried to figure out in that transition period, especially, was this a place where I'm going to be, feel uncomfortable at the partner dinners if I bring a, a date or, or a spouse or is this not? And I, generally speaking, having one or two more senior people visibly out was all it really took. And so once I, um, we had the Lawrence case and I was, you know, chair of the Supreme Court practice and we had this, it, that that became very easy for us. But it, there were a number of other firms who were also advancing people through the management of the firm and as is a visible indication that this is a safe space. Okay. And did you start working on cases that supported LGBTQ rights before or after you came out as a lawyer? I, I was doing some work for uh, one of our paid clients was the American Psychological Association. And they were always very advanced on the issue of LGBT equality uh, and so back in the 90s, during this time when the sodomy laws were being chipped away by the movement state by state, we filed a number of briefs uh, with me as lead counsel for the APA in state Supreme Courts, arguing basically that there's nothing wrong with being gay. You shouldn't feel like it needs, that it's anything justifies criminal action. People contribute to society just like anyone else, et cetera. It was sort of gay is good briefs, which at the time was still a necessary thing to tell courts. So those those were in, under my belt. At the time, the, the Lawrence case arrived at our doorstep, but this was certainly by far the biggest thing I had done so far. Of course, after Lawrence, I was very much involved in all kinds of uh, legal work, including uh, working with uh, people in Boston, the GLAD group, to bring the first big challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act, doing some marriage equality work with Lambda and ACLU. I really got the opportunity to be inside the movement to a great extent because of the, the, the Lawrence experience. As you said earlier, you've also done a fair amount of voting rights cases before the Supreme Court. Are, are there like some common issues there other than constitutional rights? How did you, uh, did they kind of lend to each other sometimes? I don't know that there was a connection. It certainly was somebody who was always interested in constitutional law going back to the 80s. And the reason we got involved in election law in general was we were trying to make it a, a paid practice area uh, and did that with some success. In fact, they're still active in the Washington Office of Gender in, in election law. And so that one thing led to another. And, then, you know, as often happens, you get once you have some experience in an area, they say, would you like to do this pro bono case as well? And so I started doing some of those, uh, you know, now, I'm, I'm, as you noted at the outset, one of my jobs is uh, working at a nonprofit that does full time democracy work, election law. Right. Do you have advice for people in law school or just starting studying for the bar or whatever, they want a career like yours. What, like your best advice for them? 
I get that question. My other job is teaching at, at Georgetown uh, Law right, School. Right. Uh, and so lots and lots of people come to me and say, I'd like to be a Supreme Court lawyer or I'd like to be an appellate lawyer. And there are various pathways. It's, it's a much more full <laughs> a, a slot than it used to be. When I was starting out, there, the whole concept of a, of a Supreme Court specialist barely existed. But now every firm in D.C., and there are a lot of firms in D.C., has their appellate person. But, you know, the one way to do it is to try to go through private practice and work your way up in an appellate group. Another is to go to the government, to go to the Justice Department, which has lots and lots of appeals opportunities. And a third one is to go to a nonprofit that does important appellate work and get experience under your belt there. None of, none of those is right or wrong. They're just different paths that people can take. And, you know, the other thing I always tell people is you shouldn't overplan your legal career because the path you're going to end up taking is never going to be the one you you you, ha- you mapped out carefully. You, you just want to be ready for the opportunities when they arrive arrive at your doorstep. And certainly that's the lesson I derive from my career and, and perhaps above all from, my, the, from grabbing the opportunity to get involved in and eventually argue the, the Lawrence case. And I'm curious, and maybe you don't know because you're out of that world now, but are there still some Wall Street firms that are known for being more supportive if you're gay than others? In in the Wall Street law firms? I yeah. haven't heard anything recently that suggests any of them are still places where people feel uncomfortable. There, there's been, uh, in more recent times, people have suggested that some of the banks in, in New York are, are tougher places, the investment banks and stuff, although people have done a lot of effective work at trying to integrate them as well. But the law, the, the, the legal culture, especially in a city like New York, I think is such that there are very many places where you would feel that your career prospects are being held back by being out. If you have the ability to do the work nowadays, likely going to be welcoming you at almost any big Wall Street firm. Do you have a sense of what we'll see next for civil rights in the GLBTQ community? Well, right now we're seeing a, a, an assault on what we've already achieved. Uh, the the politicization of harassment of people and people people showing up with guns at pride marches, the attacks on uh, the whole trans community and the effort to legislate against people uh, getting appropriate medical care for being transgender. These are terrible things. And they're happening right now in combination with the argument that religious conservatives need to be exempted from anti-discrimination mandates. And both of those things are pushing toward a, a less equal world. But given, even given all of that, uh, it's hard to, I don't really think that the world is ever going to go back to a time when uh, the LGBTQ community couldn't s- say that they have the rights that they've achieved. I, I just think we're not going to lose, lose all the progress. But boy, there's a lot of efforts being made right now to push the clock backwards. Paul, do you know if a transgender or non-binary person has done a SCOTUS argument yet? I'm thinking yes, but I'm not sure on that. I am not sure either. There are certainly some very prominent transgender attorneys who have done a lot of important work in the movement, but I'm not sure whether I can remember whether one of them got to argue the case itself in one of these. Supreme Court cases are fairly uh, hard to get these days. There aren't very many. (laughs) 
Yes, I think it is just a matter of time, though. We might see that, I'd say, like in the next maybe five, five years is my guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because uh, that, you know, it becomes an important symbol if, in the right case. Yeah, that's what I was thinking for some of the cases in the pipeline. All right. Well, that's everything that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Stephanie. Of course. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.